0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony Caldellas, your host. I hope everyone is well. Before we get started today, I'd like to draw your attention to a fellow podcast called Infectious Historians, uh, which is run by Merle Eisenberg and Lee Mordecai, who are both um, environmental historians, historians of disease, and also medievalists. Um, And it's a fascinating um, uh, podcast on infectious diseases throughout history, especially large plagues. Um, Some of the early episodes talk about uh, historical plagues, Justinianic, Black Death. Uh, Some of the more recent episodes are about the current pandemic that we're experiencing, so uh, definitely check that out. It is uh, one example of where digital media and our current experience of a pandemic meet. Uh, the other one is that those of us who are active in primary research um, on, on Byzantium and any field in the humanities right now is pretty much limited to the materials that we have at home, our personal libraries, and whatever we can access on the Internet. And The latter is actually a substantial corpus of resources, tools, and uh, databases. It has grown tremendously during the period that I've been active uh, in the field. When I started, I was using card catalogs in the library and handwritten notes, Uh, and uh, (laughs) I don't do either of those anymore. The resources that we have available for conducting research online or through uh, digital means, which are almost always accessed online now, is, is impressive, it's incredible, um, and it's not just a, a time saver, um, it, it doesn't just accelerate research and uh, make um, uh, larger amounts of information available to uh, us um, at, a, at, a, at a glance, uh, but it also shapes some of the questions that we can ask and shapes some of the methods and directions of research. So I thought that in this environment, when we're increasingly relying on that part of our toolkit, um, I thought that it would be uh, interesting to have a discussion about digital humanities and Byzantium. Um, And I found just the right person for this. Uh, This is uh, Kuba Kabbalah, uh, who's a professor of medieval history at Davidson College. And he's a medievalist. He works on the same kinds of topics that everybody else does. But at the same time, he's also a digital humanities expert. Um, and as 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 you may know, whether you're in the field or even outside of it, you may know that digital humanities is this kind of holy grail, um, and a lot of colleges and universities are looking to find, first of all, <laughs> what that is, and then also someone who does it well. It is in itself a, a vast and manifold field, um, and uh, as you'll see, we're not going to be able to get into all of the many many. Uh, digital humanities projects that impinge on uh, Byzantium and Byzantine research um, in this conversation now we're going to focus on some of the really big ones and their implications you know where they come from um, and and you know how they shape research what new questions they ask how digital humanities emerge from uh, more traditional philological and modes of research now one topic that unfortunately we didn't have time to get into was the the infrastructure required to maintain such projects especially databases and uh, interactive um, uh, in- interfaces and databases and so on um, and and that, it's a problem um, in other words you may find the resources to do the research and put it online in some kind of interactive way but what happens to it in the long term like who's going to be maintaining it who's going to be paying for the platform uh, how quickly will it become obsolete? These are also very important questions, and um, I just wanted to acknowledge them here. So, without any further delay, uh, here's my conversation with Kuba. Uh, hello, Kuba, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me. So you, so you, you're a historian of the early Middle Ages, and also your your position also has a digital humanities side. Um, and you're currently at Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, so. Uh, but but the library is closed. Yes, it is. Um, as everywhere. Yeah. So all of our research has come down to whatever books you happen to have with you, whatever resources you have on your computer, plus digital humanities. Um, right? Isn't that right. where we are? Yeah, that's right. Um, now, so many experts will obviously know what digital humanities are. But a lot of the um, uh, listeners of this podcast won't. I mean, they're not pro- professionals in our field, so they don't know the the, the tools that that we use um, mm-hmm. online that we have um, available. Um, and digital humanities also is one of these words that it for a long time, and possibly still, it was kind of a catchword for like things we want to do, but we don't know exactly what they are. Yeah, <laughs> and. I remember just for decades, this was a kind of like a like a holy grail of especially of deans and things like this. Like, oh, we need to do digital humanities, but but we don't know what they are. Uh, And it reminded me of this passage um, in this um, comical. It was a comical retelling of the Arthurian legends, and Mm -hmm. it's the Knights of the Round Table who who don't know what a grail is, but (laughs) they but they know (laughs) that they have to be looking for it. And, and this is so true because as a child, I remember not knowing what a grail was. <laughs> like, uh-huh. why would you know what a grail is, right? Um, and and I've, I've been at present at discussions of digital humanities that have the following kind of So I'm going to read a couple sentences from this. Um, it's a book called uh, Rude Tales and Glorious, and it's pretty hilarious. Okay. Now know you that not one of those knights was certain in his heart exactly what a grail was save that it was holy and the object of quests. (laughs) But as no man durst confess his ignorance, each bethought himself the only one so stunted in knowledge. And each did always nod profoundly and sigh whenever the grail was mentioned. And when each looked about and saw his fellows nodding and sighing right meaningfully, he was confirmed in his belief that the thing was commonly known by all Save him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is really good. You know it's, sorry, go ahead. The,
0: so there, d- just replace Holy Grail with digital humanities, and I've been at those meetings.
1: yeah, it's it's so interesting. It's the um uh, there are so many articles and blog posts and um, uh, you know conference proceedings, even whole volumes dedicated to the question of, what is the grail? I mean, what is digital humanities? Yeah, <laughs> and it's a, uh, it's I mean, literally hundreds um, in a recent bibliography that I that that I was looking at. So it's a uh, it's a big question, even for practitioners, for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, and so since you have digital humanities in your job description, I'm going to put you on the spot here and just say, so what is digital humanities? What are digital humanities?
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, great question. Really, really big question. Um, <clears throat> Uh, I guess most broadly you could say that it's any kind of humanities pursuit that involves the use of digital technology. Um, that's of course so broad that it, um, it uh, is probably not very helpful. Um, we could maybe think of it on a couple different levels. Um, on one level it could be humanities work that uses digital media, digital platforms, digital technology to, um, to share. Uh, research, to share results, to connect people, uh, to disseminate things. Um, So this would be, for example, anything that that takes up the work of sharing or of um, communicating. Um, When you think of online text databases, when you think of uh, digital bibliographies, digital maps, digital catalogs, all these kinds of things that let us uh, connect with sources and each other um, in our work. That would be one really important part of digital humanities, I would say. And that kind of open access sharing ethos is a, is a really big part of the project, as, as far as I can tell. <clears throat> On another level, we could think of digital humanities as more as a method. Um, how can you do things to humanities materials with the help of computational power, uh, to interpret the sources or to make arguments about the sources in potentially new ways. And um, th- this takes the shape of many projects uh, doing things, transforming things uh, with texts, uh, images, um, maps, archaeological data. Um, yeah, and that's a a bit more of a quantitative. Uh, let's say hardcore approach to the to the to the method uh, to the enterprise, but it's still a really big part of it. Um, yeah, on the
0: methodological side. Um, yeah. So we're dealing with. So f- first of all, there are things that individual human beings can't do, um, such as, um, uh, you know, be aware of large amounts of data simultaneously yeah. and being able to yeah, like trawl it for patterns or whatever. Um, at the same time that can be used to generate results um, so to see things that the individual researcher can't see such as patterns of certain grammatical features in a text which would take you years to write sit down and compile or archaeological data right so yeah it's it's a it's a stronger processing of the material so long as that material can be digitized
1: that's right and Which is why those these two components actually work well together. You can't do that kind of uh, Processing unless you first have the materials in digital form Which requires someone to share them or a team of people more likely to digitize Compile put up publish and share. Yeah Absolutely.
0: Well, so as I mean as a humanist, uh, I you know, I've always had been ambivalent about digital humanities um, because I recognize both its um, the advantages and also the limitations, um, and and there's always a problem, of course, when the limitations come to define our field of vision, so that you know all that we can see is what we can reduce to digital form. So l- let me just be more explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, the part that you mentioned about sharing, that I think this is very important. So mm-hmm. there's a hu- there's there's a qualitative difference between. Um, digital and non-digital uh, dissemination of materials which is that digital materials can be reproduced infinitely <clears throat> oh, with almost no cost like this is not the case with books anything physical right mm-hmm. and for me that is a the technological sort of analog of an ideal transmission of knowledge I, in other words I can you know reproduce and give to someone else uh, you know bodies of work or books or whatever instantly and with no cost and with no loss to myself. And, and for me, that is a a sort of equivalent to like teaching, Mm -hmm. right? Like even when I'm in a classroom and you're teaching, you have a conversation and you're learning, both sides are giving and exchanging and so on with no loss to themselves. Mm -hmm. And, And I think there's something sort of constituted of knowledge as such that favors digital media right anyway, I mean, I see how it's philosophical i i I don't think that knowledge should should have like a um, a value ascribed to it that is akin to that of a scarce resource
1: yes right
0: and and digital media makes knowledge infinitely accessible,
1: and that's great yeah, absolutely um, there is a yeah there's a tendency to be um I, I don't know if suspicious is the right word but 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 definitely to favor that which is open access in the broader digital humanities world, I think, for a lot of those reasons um, of uh, kind of democratizing, making open to the public knowledge. Um, <clears> one <throat> one we were chatting um, uh, at some point earlier, um, I, I was just struck thinking about this, how now in the age of quarantine, all of a sudden. Uh, a lot of presses, university presses and publishers have made a lot more of their materials digitally available to, to yeah, researchers. Right. And that kind of makes you aware that, well, it's possible.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. We can put file that away with uh, airlines making uh, tickets more easy to change and so forth. It's like, why couldn't we do this before? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, so obviously we're in, well, we'll see. We'll see how much of that. Um, sticks Mm -hmm. around you know the ugly moment is going to be when all of that is retracted right like now oh no now now we're not sharing all of this anymore it's like well
1: there's a new normal for some things but not for others
0: yeah (laughs) we'll see okay so and then there's the on the other hand on the other hand there is there's something about what humanists do um especially more on the side of interpretation like uh, like interpreting Mm -hmm. a text or explaining a historical event mm-hmm. that is an activity that is not I think digital um, that that unless we get you know science fiction level AI is not going to be generated by digital methods mm-hmm. um, and only the results of that can be recorded and disseminated in digital media but not the process itself. Mm-hmm. So for all that yeah, you know digital humanities can help us as a tool with certain kinds of things i i think that it's possible that the most important things that we do as humanists are not um the products of digital um mm-hmm. you know analysis but it's whatever we put into the the uh, algorithms and the software
1: yeah absolutely um <clears throat> and that's that that's a really good point that was one of the big critiques, you know. Digital humanities isn't didn't come out of a void, and we've seen this. I, I haven't seen this before, I guess, but we as a field have seen this before. In the sixties and seventies, there was another um, an, an earlier push for uh, quantifying, serializing, uh, being I very explicit that. and formal, and even mathematical about humanities problems. And that was one of the critiques: is that okay? You can come up with a a formula which is rigorous, but but what if all of the earlier work that doesn't actually make it onto the pages of the, you know, how you select the data, how you classify, mm-hmm. all of those are involve human judgment. If that's not rigorous, then no matter how rigorous the formula is, the result won't be as meaningful as it could be. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, the um, this current wave, of interest in computation uh the digital and whatnot seems to you know we call it digital humanities as in the digital changes the humanities in some way but Mm. i'm not so sure if if if, you know if if it's going to be if it's that kind of a fundamental transformation We, we still need to do the work of judgment of of assessment and 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 bring that human perspective on it absolutely
0: yeah because reproducibility is one thing but the the quantification the bias toward quantification that it introduces is another i mean that's a methodological priority um, and it can it can skew things Uh, anyway we'll we can revisit some of these questions Um, but let's talk about um the byzantium's place in the world of digital humanities uh, mm-hmm. So where, where does where does our field stand in that uh, universe?
1: Yeah, it stands, um, it's a great question. Um, it stands, it's an important part of the field. Um, uh, it is, um, one way I like to think about this is that a major branch of the genealogy of digital humanities, uh, uh, it goes back to philology, kind of close attention to texts. And uh, people have been counting and and quantifying texts for a long time, uh, well before computers uh, came on the scene. And if you look at that early history, then it is philologists paying really, really close attention to Greek texts. (laughs) So maybe it's not Byzantium per se, but it's definitely Plato, the letters of Paul, all sorts of uh, big ticket Classical biblical corpora of Greek language texts that really stand at the forefront of at least this branch of DH. Right,
0: or Homer also, right? Like the, the whole, yeah, the, yeah, the whole debate about orality and how many authors and all that. Um, and, and for Plato, if, if I remember correctly, it was a it was the push to try to establish a relative chronology of the dialogues by counting word usage, like stylometrics.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. It was a, um, a Polish philologist and philosopher in the 1890s, maybe even earlier, um, who began working on this. I don't think he was the first to work on this, but, but, but his, his book on this was, 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 was famous and big. And yeah, he traced, uh, uh hundreds of what he called stylistic peculiarities across the platonic corpus, rare words, rare phrases, um, particles, things like this to try to order the dialogues into some kind of a meaningful order.
0: Yeah. So like in, you know, his old age, Plato was using more of a men deck constructions and mm-hmm. you know, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that just required hours of manual labor, just reading yep. and counting what, index cards, right? That sort of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah Absolutely uh similar kind of work was done on the letters of Paul, which ones were actually written right. by Paul, which ones were not. Yeah. and same thing that was explicitly focused on on those small uh, words. So yeah, uh, countless hours.:
0: Yeah, computations that today with our uh, you know media we can do in seconds. Yep. yeah. So what kind of digital media did that strand of the tradition result in? What kind of media? Uh, Like digital
1: technologies
0: or platforms or or resources.
1: Yeah, um, so originally these were published as articles and published as books. Um, There's a really famous example in the early 20th century um, of a a, a Jesuit priest who got interested in doing something like this uh, for the works of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, So again, it's not really Byzantium, um, but it's in the universe, let's say, of pre-modern right. European history. And um, yeah, he, uh, a fellow named uh, Robert Busa, um, who developed, uh, uh, wanted to develop an, an entire concordance and lemmatization of all the works of Thomas Aquinas, he actually got on board with, uh, with IBM. And this was one of the early collaborations between a religious medieval scholar and uh, yeah, big tech. Uh, and this was this the, the result was incredible uh, It's now it's available online. You can do a full it's called the index Tomisticus, for example um, and uh, but, uh, uh, but But that kind of count very clear detailed counting of words and lemmas and word forms and statistical approaches uh, That comes right out of the late 19th century uh, stuff um,
0: Yeah, it's to solve the same kinds of problems
1: uh, yeah, exactly. And then so once you add computation uh, uh, Mainframes and whatnot, you can speed that up and make it now, you know, m- make it accessible and now online format um, And on the Greek side this resulted in like the
0: TLG the thesaurus linguae grec, right? It's an online database oh, yeah. of Greek text
1: Yeah, absolutely that I mean that's a that's a huge project uh, um um which which came a little bit later um, uh, than, than this uh, uh, Aquinas project but yeah I mean the TLG I can't imagine work as a in, in Greek text without the TLG um it's um this uh, what it's a it's a it's a digital database of of I don't think all, but but close to all Greek literature composed from what Homer to um, the fall of Constantinople.
0: Yeah, they're pushing past that now.
1: Even past that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and yeah. It, I mean, it's not everything. Um, I mean, there's so many thousands of versions of Byzantine saints' lives. You know that, that you, they're they're not in there, but uh, it's it's pretty close. Um, What's
1: interesting um, with the TLG, too is that, that that's another example of a um, of of a collaboration between academics and um and and big tech, and it's one of the this is the the, 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 the Packard family was involved in this as, as in as in Hewlett Packard, uh, in producing CD-ROMs and producing the database
0: right.
1: and things, and so again a very early cross academic. Um, industry collaboration there.
0: I remember the CD-ROM era of that project.
1: Yeah, uh, as far as I understand, I mean, they were at the forefront of just CD-ROMs full stop. I mean, uh, yeah. it, it, they shared their databases like that in the 80s, I think.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think every subscriber institution got like, a CD.
1: That may be. That, yeah.
0: That's. I remember you, that. Yes, it was kept in a I, special room. <laughs> Okay. In, the, in the library and yeah yeah you had to check out the cd and go use it on a computer that had the software
1: <laughs> right
0: and uh, yeah uh, the, uh, interesting you should mention the packard because they're uh, this is the the sort of philanthropic side of the corporation mm-hmm. and they um fund here at ohio state they fund the digitization of greek inscriptions oh um, yeah That's the phi right. project so yeah, we're involved in that. I, I, I sign these forms every month um, and yeah, so you can go and look up. I mean, it's not complete, but uh, we've got a lot of them up there and it's a searchable database. It's open access um, yeah. and, and there's a parallel group working on the papyri.
1: Also at Ohio State?
0: No, no, no. That, that I mean, these are all consortia. They're not necessarily yeah. based in one place. But yeah, papyri.info is the uh, one place that you can access uh, them. Um, and uh,
1: these are, you know, the Greek papyri from Egypt. The, uh, <clears throat> that's really interesting. The, the example of Packard's involvement in digitizing Greek inscriptions is a tremendous uh, example of how once you put a lot of resources into digitizing and sharing something, uh, so kind of phase one of the digital humanities you know, enterprise, then people can come along and, and, and do something uh, with them. And that particular database has actually been the, the, uh, the basis of a really interesting project involving neural networks to train computers to restore uh, damaged Greek inscriptions. Um, oh
0: right. Okay, so we we're going to say sort of <laughs> damaged actual
1: brains. Uh, no. <laughs> anyway, that's just a, an example. We can t- talk about that at some point if you're interested. But yeah, um, because
0: the inscriptions tend to be formulaic, right? So that the database itself can what is used to uh, generate hypotheses for the missing parts of inscriptions.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's it, it's you use what's called a, a neural network to to train a the network on a lot of, a lot of examples that are known, so that if it gets an example that's unknown, it can make a, a good prediction. That's and, fascinating. And this works on. There's different ways of training these kinds of neural networks. I mean, this is all the this this is the I mean, this is the holy grail right now <laughs> of uh, artificial intelligence is how to right. make and smarter neural networks when it's the same principle when you for example when you type in google uh you type in a, a search and all of a sudden it auto it for you yes it's predicting the sequence of characters and words that you're going to um place um, based on a huge amount of um, other sequences of characters and words okay. that you and other users have have, have inputted and it's it's the same principle. Let's let's start. With, let's give like a sequence of three or four Greek characters. What's our best prediction for the next five or six or whatever?
0: Right. Yeah. Because filling in gaps in inscriptions, because inscriptions are often damaged or broken, um, mm-hmm. is one of the main you know challenges that face epigraphists yeah um, and it, it's interesting you should say that because it it brings to mind sort of we can have like a, a hypothetical uh, a, a, a challenge like a b- between an AI reconstructor and an epigraphist reconstructor, get like Louis Robert or something bring him back from, you know there. Yeah. <laughs> because that's well, what he did. I mean, Louis Robert would reconstruct. I then there's a famous case of an of an inscription in Delphi that was broken right down the middle. And Mm -hmm. he had hypothesized what the other half would be and it was found and he was
1: spot-on Yeah, fascinating and that's like in the 50s or 60s Mm -hmm. or something And you have to think about how how many other patterns he must have contained in his brain to make that kind of reconstruction yeah. Um, and, and make that kind of prediction you know th- th- so this um the study i'm thinking of this team of oxford um, uh, scholars did just that they pitted a couple of pigraphers against the oh really the, that they developed now they, they used two doctoral students um and the uh, and the machine won <laughs> okay. uh but uh uh, I think that's a that that would be an interesting thing to do uh, kind of on a broader level too you know bring in more people and and fine tune the machine and whatnot oh, <laughs>
0: nice yeah so so precisely so, but i have to say this I am incredibly privileged to have things like the t l g and Phi and papyri and all all that online as digital yeah. assets mm-hmm. because I know that there's probably almost no other field that is as far developed in having those kinds of resources as mine is. Or if you were like a classicist or a Byzantinist, right? Because it's the same language. Mm-hmm. And so it's all just added all in there. Um, whereas every time I I have to use resources in like neighboring or what for me are auxiliary fields or whatever... It just, you just go off a cliff in terms mm. of the, the sophistication and extent of the digital assets that are available. Like Arabic, you know, that's like not even close, not remotely close. Like they don't mm. even have for many things standard editions, mm-hmm. right? It's like, oh, you have to go look at the manuscript and read. Like they're so, <clears> so far from having those kinds of things. And I and when I realized this off, e- you know, even the Latin side, I think. Oh, Yeah. Can- is Not as developed as the Greek mm. I mean I I could be wrong, but the TLL is not even remotely close to the TLG and anyway hmm Um, and I I just anyway So are there any reasons why the Greek side would be so far ahead of everything else in digital?
1: That's a really interesting question. Um, why would that be? I mean, just chronologically speaking, they were the first to get in the game. Yeah, so, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: for example, the, the TLG begins in the 70s. The kind of closest competitor, if you can call it that, or the analog on the Latin side, begins in the kind of late 80s, early 90s, the the, the 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 Cetadoc Library of Latin Texts. Um, and <clears throat> I don't think that the Library of Latin Texts makes as as big a claim to 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 completeness uh as does the tlg um although i would have to check that exactly but but they have a, a head start that's for sure um, um is that also because they have a head start uh, relatively speaking uh you know a, a, approaching these these kinds of texts the 19th century. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know
0: Yeah, no, I think that th- that is important uh, yeah. Because after all this is all just analysis and processing of texts and all of our methodologies should sort of cut their teeth on Homer Plato the New Testament mm-hmm. like in the 19th century that was the those are the main texts um, whose you know philological problems everyone was trying to solve and mm-hmm. the different kinds of problems, right? So for Homer, it's, you know, questions of orality and, inter- yeah. and interpolations. In Plato, it's the relative chronology. In the New Testament, it's like authenticity and all the- and, yeah. and And so you have all these philologists, these like super smart people, 19th, early 20th century, who are working on these kinds of problems. And I guess, you know, they had, you know, developed their techniques to the point where when digital media became possible or, or computing technologies became poss- possible, they were the first to jump in.
1: Yeah, um, <clears throat> that's really interesting. I'd be curious to know exactly what what the folks at Irvine were thinking as well, um, why that happened at Irvine and not somewhere else, for example, so the TLG is housed at yeah, uh, yeah. Or in Irvine. Um uh, that's, um, you know, I was, someone made an interesting point. I think it was David Hurley. He, uh, was a historian, but when he went you know, in the 19th century had a lot of these, uh, on the Latin side, again, had a lot of, uh, these big projects to collect, edit, formalize and issue, editions of texts, uh, of Latin texts. And in a way that. There is some kind of standardization going on in a lot of these huge 19th-century editorial projects that are kind of an early analog predecessor to the standardization that you see in digital editions today. Um, it wasn't digital back then, but the, yeah. but there, there's a similar kind of ethos informing the project as well.
0: Yeah, I think Byzantine studies have benefited here from a close association with classics. I mean, they've always gone together. Um, And, you know, there's no break or seam between the two fields, um, despite how they sometimes operate on a disciplinary level. Right. Um, But uh, even if you think of something now, so stepping uh, stepping away from the digitization of texts, Mm -hmm. we have things like the Bryn Mawr Classical Review, Totally, which yeah. is a pioneer. I right? like that's
1: This was as far as I understand it, the, the the first ever open access humanities journal <laughs>
0: Full yeah. stop.
1: Yeah, and and
0: now I mean for those who don't know you can go and put your email in and you will receive the emails with the reviews of books and classics of Every subfield and every language
1: Yeah I wonder if, if 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 some of this in, in the cl- on the classics side of things in particular, because once you get into Byzantium, then obviously you've got this huge mass. But in the classics, where relatively speaking, the the, the just the collection of written sources is, is compared to other fields is is let's say relatively smaller. Um, maybe. In you know the, the idea that necessity is the mother of, of invention, you have to become a little bit more creative with what you do have. Um, I'm sure classicists would a lot of classes might disagree with me on this. Um, but that might also have been another spur, I guess mm-hmm. uh, uh, to, to coming up with with quantitative, computational, digital, um, innovative approaches to texts that scholars in other fields didn't necessarily have to because, Oh, here's a new text. Oh, here's a new text. Oh, we let's keep going with new texts. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I mentioned this uh, when it comes up at meetings. I mean, I mean, I'm the chair of a classics department. I represent the field. And um, anytime I hear something that even implies that classics is kind of this very hidebound conservative thing that doesn't, you know, still use quills and, you know, whatever papyri. I say no, no, no. In fact, classics is, was a pioneer in using digital uh, media and and coming up with these platforms and technologies way ahead of other humanities fields.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know what it is about the field, but uh, it it did do those things a- anyway. Um, <laughs> all right, let, let's let's uh, talk uh, more broadly, maybe again about digital humanities um, and um, you know what what they. Uh, are offering to us right now so in terms of uh, let's just say can you pose new questions by using digital humanities that people either weren't using or couldn't pose before
1: mm mm-hmm. uh, definitely um, or l- let me say that I think that is what a lot of practitioners uh, w- would say that this is a huge promise and a huge goal for doing digital humanities and the reason for that is um, along the lines of what you said earlier on in our conversation that uh, putting th- putting source material into digital form allows us to kind of comprehend to, to take a take a view of a whole in a way that's not really possible when we uh, read serially through a source, for example. Uh, we can find patterns of word usage across time. We can find, Patterns of phrases that, uh, across time, things that disappear, things that reappear, um, things like that. And I'm again, these examples are coming just out of texts and and corpora of texts. But that kind of work uh, does very often lead to new questions. Say, a biblical phrase from Psalms all of a sudden gets a lot of play in the ninth century. Uh, Then. It's something that you wouldn't necessarily have noticed uh if you were just reading the sources in the traditional way, but you see this from this, you know, from this distant reading approach, which is a term in 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 the field, then all of a sudden you have a question, well, why? (laughs) What's going on in the ninth century that this particular verse is all over the place? Um that's just a hypothetical example. Um uh but but those kinds of things are detectable. Um Tastes change over time uh, for sometimes for reasons that are meaningful, sometimes for reasons that are not so meaningful. Yeah. Right. But those kinds, Yeah. So those kinds of new questions, uh, patterns lead to new questions.
0: Yeah, I, I, int- I had a similar. Well, I didn't dis- I didn't discover this through digital humanities. I just confirmed it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the through a Google word search, you know how you can search for the frequency of a word, well, okay. ngrams in the oh. is that what they're called? Yeah. yeah, And and this was just some research that I was doing about how the term Byzantium became prevalent in the nineteenth century because I don't mm-hmm. think it was it was prevalent before that. Um, and Google Google, is, is sides with me, <laughs> okay. and and going into the nineteenth century, the key terms are empire of the Greeks or Greek Empire or that sort of thing, and mm-hmm. that drastically declines after the mid-century and Byzantium and Byzantine Empire pick up in the second half of the 19th century and become and dominant. And you can see it's this perfect X. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it's good for all, it works in all European languages. So something was going on. Uh, and 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 I, now I had already written about what that was just based on a very impressionistic selection of texts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was good to see it uh, visually in, in in Google as well. Um, so, uh, is there? Can you do this with shipwrecks, <laughs> right? Have you have you been involved oh. in this, this
1: shipwreck project, right? Uh, th- this is a. Uh, I've been involved in the the digital atlas of Roman and medieval civilization. Is that what you're talking? We're referring to? Yeah, I thought sh- shipwrecks were part of it. I definitely, <laughs> it, definitely. That's a, So this is a, a an online. It's another example of a way of of sharing research. Uh, uh, online, uh, it's a digital atlas um, uh, uh, that also hosts original research and and, and databases of 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 of, um, of finds and of interesting archaeological and not only archaeological uh, materials uh, for researchers to use. Anyway, uh, yeah, so a database of all shipwrecks in the Mediterranean from I forget what exactly the date range is. I think from the broadly understood the medieval period. Um, uh, are up there so i wasn't involved in that particular um, side of it database yeah. i was involved in other parts of that yeah uh, what, what di-
0: parts were you involved in
1: i worked on encoding some um, um, places for the maps of uh, medieval eastern europe and the, and the missions the bavarian missions to christianize the slavs of central europe in how do you, the, map, how do you I, map something I, like that um, th- we were wor- uh, working from uh, a series of well-established uh, uh, print atlases and converting them into digital form. Um, I forget it. I would have to check exactly which atlases we used for the, um, f- f- for these particular um, missions. Um, uh, l- most of the classical uh, and Roman world come out of the Great Barrington atlas.
0: Yeah, sure. Um okay so what about um new audiences
1: Oh yeah um <clears throat> this so right so new patterns is 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 a, a new questions um and uh, new audiences uh, absolutely i mean uh look at your podcast i i imagine Oh podcasts that... count too right Oh yeah oh yeah i mean this would be definitely a I mean, we are right now talking via a digital platform and you are recording this using uh, some kind of digital tool and you will then publish it yes. on another digital platform. This yes. is as, as digital as it gets. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but, I mean, absolutely. If This is, I, I think, again, part of that open access ethos um, in in the field uh, Probably, and I think, yeah, uh, you know, more people will listen to this than, uh, than, will read my work.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, or mine for that matter. It's it's sobering. In just a few months, um, there've been more downloads of the sum total of these episodes than I think for everything that I've published <laughs> in terms of sales.
1: Well, that is very discouraging to me. <laughs> w- why? No, the opposite. No, no, I know. I'm kidding.
0: <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, the, the ability to scale it up is incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. Uh, the, and that's what I was saying about the the,
1: the uh, reproducibility and dissemination. So, so I, I think new audiences for people interested in scholarship, but also there's there, there's a sense for reaching new audiences among scholars as well. Um, and creating new, I think it's the, the digital platforms and digital dissemination allow um, kind of cross fertilization, uh, among scholars and researchers in ways that was a lot harder, uh, before these kind of platforms existed as well. So, I mean, look at something like, like academia, uh, for example, that, right. that website, how, how easier it is now to, to read the work of scholars, to, uh, to connect with them. Um, I mean, if you're at a, you know, I'm a, if if you're not at at an institution that doesn't have a research uh, library, uh, but a, a library more geared for undergraduate education, then this kind of these kinds of resources are tremendous in connecting and furthering research.
0: Oh, for scholars certainly. Um, yeah. I mean, I remember when I started uh, scholarship, uh, there were no. I wasn't using any digital technologies, mm-hmm. um, and even email came along pretty slowly um but now um i i I can measure the the speed with which i acquire materials that i need um Mm. and i have access to uh all of these corpora like inscriptions and papyri that in the past you had to go to a special collection often in some remote part of a campus and and just pour through huge volumes um
1: And it it was unwieldy, like it really was. Or uh, yeah, another way of uh, another example of this is manuscripts. Oh yeah. There's a time when you would have to go to the Bibliothèque Nationale or the uh, whatever um, a library you needed in Europe or or elsewhere to consult manuscripts. Now, so many manuscripts are available in digital form. Yeah, about
0: about half the manuscripts that I wanted to look at I've been able
1: to find online. That's yeah. It's I mean, and that's that, that. Think about the time saved, and of course, not that that doesn't completely replace um, for all projects the need to consult the, the actual manuscripts, but but for many projects it does.
0: Yeah, like my completely amateurish interest in you know, this. I just want to see, you know, maybe read some part of a text, just a little bit, or or see where the images, or just scroll right. through the manuscript. Yeah, for those purposes, you don't need to travel to Rome or Paris. Yeah. <clears throat> Right. No, you're right. So all the digitized manuscripts and and all this and and those are materials that I mean, even non-scholars can can use.
1: Yep, that's that's right. And that includes the uh, the um, kind of archivists and the librarians uh, who are uh, who who play a huge role in the general kind of ecosystem of digital humanities. Uh, and uh, again, it kind of connects that part of the system to the scholars and researchers in new ways, um, maybe not completely novel ways, but, but in deeper ways, perhaps.
0: Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your research and how you've combined uh, <clears throat> sort of more traditional historical, philological research with um, sort of digital technology. Yeah. Um, but, but, but first I, I just wanted to mention um, that uh, Alexander Kajdan, um, I think we, we had discussed him yeah, a little right. bit. Uh, so this is a, a, a Byzantine historian, 20th century from from Russia who emigrated to the United States um, and resided at Dumbarton Oaks, where you are now um, for quite some time, a couple decades, I think. Um, and, and he was a he was a leading Byzantine historian. Lots of his books still in print. Um, so why did why did you think we should mention him?
1: <clears throat> I think about uh, Kajdan a lot uh, it, it, when I talk to people about digital humanities. Um, uh, it's This article that I encountered when I was an undergraduate that stayed with me, and I, I keep assigning it to my students, especially in these digital uh, 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 courses that I teach. Um, anyway, he had this insight about the, the different kinds of information you can glean from from Byzantine records, and he called them... Um, you can you can glean direct information, and you can, or you can look for indirect information. And um, direct information w- was for him the you know the stuff that the author intended to convey. Uh, I have a story to tell. Here's a story. Indirect information is the stuff that an author may not have been conscious of, but manages to convey nonetheless. Um, so examples he includes are uh, you know things like um, uh, like the stock of metaphors an, o- an author will 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 reach for it and all of a sudden you know he'll use uh metaphors of shipwrecks for example uh, uh without you know necessarily being thinking ah now i will insert shipwreck metaphor it's just something that it's just the way the mind works but then taken in sum you have a stock of you know let's say 50 metaphors 11 of them are shipwreck metaphors four of them are uh, uh, tree falling metaphors. I, th- that's not his example. I'm just uh, coming up with, something. and all of a sudden, that in and of itself becomes interesting and becomes indirect evidence about something going on in that, perhaps in that society, in his mind, in the in the mind of the author. And the examples could be multiplied. And uh, this is where, uh, and and so what, what Kajdan is saying is that we should be attuned as Byzantinists to indirect information and sources. Uh, That the way to do that is to take a source and to transform it in some way into a what he called a secondary source. So either a tabulation, um, a map, uh, a table of some sort, um, and then use that transformation as further evidence to write about. And this is the the digital humanities project in in a nutshell in many ways take some complex humanistic information, use some kind of quantification, classification scheme to transform it into something else, and then write about it and think about it. And maybe it'll be interesting, maybe it won't be, but at least it'll be a different way of getting at uh, the subject. And and so this is how do you look for new patterns, how do you look for connections, it's, it's this kind of way. And so I've always been struck that Kajdan was 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 writing about this in the 80s i don't know his russian work really from the 70s i understand that he wrote some you know he he engaged in prosopographical studies uh um back then so he was as far as i understand doing this kind of work himself um but you know when you read modern uh, you know kind of contemporary theorists of what digital humanities is it's it's often like like an echo of what he was saying uh yeah
0: do you know about his index cards and the boxes of index cards? No. I yeah. Don't. So this is the this is the 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 other side of the coin. I'm like where he's getting all of this uh, that you just described, and and you described it beautifully. Like that's yeah, that's what he was up to. But he had boxes and boxes of um, index cards with information that he had taken from texts. Mm-hmm. Um, and. some some of them very granular information some of it going down to the individual word um, and so the index card would have you know the the word or phrase or item you know whatever he was interested in and then a whole bunch of cross references underneath handwritten in, in boxes and boxes and boxes that he took he brought with him and
1: fascinating
0: and and so when he would find a new item, he would make an index card, say where it was, and then start cross-referencing everything. Wow. And that data, it's a proto-database, and after all even computing technology emerged from index cards. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and he he used that as the basis for a number of things, such as, for example, the Oxford Dictionary of Byzantium, Mm -hmm. uh, which is now 30 Thirty years old. I mean, we might we might be thinking about a new one, uh, but yeah, he used it for that and also for the Dumbarton Oaks um, database on saints' lives, which is oh, yeah. it's still up there. It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and so a lot of this was and and also his own scholarship was was based on this database that he had.
1: That's really interesting t- uh, to hear about, to learn about. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show that you don't need, and, uh, and maybe he was doing this with computers eventually, uh, I don't know, but but by the sounds of it, you don't need an actual physical computer to do this kind of classification work that is such a big part of digital humanities today. Yeah, just infinite
0: know. time. Right, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and patience. Actually, now that I mentioned the index cards I I have to correct something I said earlier. Uh, so when when I started to enter the world of scholarship, there was there was one kind of technology digital technology that very quickly become became important and that was the uh, university library catalog. Yeah. Right. But when I arrived at Michigan it was still the card catalog. Mhm. And they had it in these beautiful rows of, you know, wooden cabinets. Yeah. And and within a couple of years, the, the computer database had uh, replaced it. They kept it for aesthetic reasons. They, they kept the card catalog cabinets for aesthetic reasons. Eventually, they phased them out because room is always, you know, space is at a premium. And, uh, but mm-hmm. I had professors who refused to use the computer. They thought it was barbaric and uh-huh. inhuman and would, would go to the card catalog for as long as it was there.
1: Yeah, I, am, I mean, it's amazing how quickly that that change happened. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I, I, I can't imagine. Um, I remember seeing the physical card catalogs when I was in graduate school; they were still there. I think more for aesthetic reasons as well, yeah. <laughs> kind of lining the distant halls. But yeah, does anyone use those anymore? Do you know anyone who uses? No, not,
0: not any. Well, not in this country. Uh, mm. But yeah, yeah. And sometimes, you know, if there was an error, you know, you'd go and you'd you'd correct it in the and I know you weren't supposed to write in the card, but you just wanted to save someone else, you know, an hour and you say, no, this is really whatever. Anyway, like a proto Wikipedia. <laughs> <Yes. You're laughs> editing the common database. Yeah, something like that. OK, so wh- why don't you tell us a, a little bit about um, your, your projects, your, your scholarship that's been informed by uh, digital, digital Humanities?
1: Yeah, thanks. I've been interested in authorship attribution. That's been my the field that I've been um, most active uh, digitally in. So this is um, the pre-modern world is, is, is full of texts that, that are not attributed to particular authors. Um, but scholars over the years have developed lots of hunches about who may have written something, who may, uh, who the author may be, and so this is really ripe right ground for, um, for, for, fertile ground for um, digital approaches, and authorship attribution. Again, this kind of this is a, an old branch of the field. Um, uh, so to give an example of what I did, um, there is a, I looked at two um, anonymous latin texts from the early opening decades of the 12th century and there have been hunches that both of these texts were actually written by one and the same anonymous author Um, and it's an interesting question because the texts come from very different uh, parts of medieval europe one is it comes out of venice and it's the uh, first uh, uh, and, and most important account of the venetian participation on the first crusade and then the second text uh, and is written in the form of a of, of a relic theft. So it's almost like the the crusading information is um, you know is kind of uh, of secondary interest to the actual point of the text. Anyway, and then, then the second text is uh, comes out of Poland um, and it's the the, the first. Uh, Chronicle of uh, kind of the deeds. It's uh, uh, a deeds of the kings and princes of the of the Mm poles. So two very different contexts. uh, uh, Two anonymous authors. And um, and now and so the question is: Are these written by the same author or not? And so I yeah I used some computational approaches to uh, to to, to, I I won't say to definitively solve. There's still some room for um, um, for needed verification, but to advance the the ball uh, to,
0: to defend the common authorship or different authorship?
1: Yeah, the evidence, but this very strongly points to common authorship. And very can strong. you then also link the
0: author of those texts up with the author of the known author of other texts?
1: No, not yet. Not yet. I don't know if that, if, if that's possible or not. But okay, <laughs> um, uh, there's been a. a there's been I've seen a couple hypotheses about possible other short texts that may have come from the same author, uh, but again, those are anonymous.
0: Right. <laughs> so, so, I mean, without getting into the weeds here, but yeah. why had anybody originally suspected that they might have been by the same author? These two texts. Th-
1: they originally suspected this because of uh, of, of courses So the. Cadences in the rhythmic prose. In no the way, really. Yeah, and um, uh, Corsus develops, uh, or it kind of takes off in the second half of the eleventh century, in the Latin world, um, uh, and um, there, there's 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 a, there's a there's like four major cadences that one can use to kind of finish sentences or phrases with, um, and uh, there's one one of them is really really rare, mm-hmm. and it just so happened that the signature of uh, the way that both of these authors favored uh, the rhythmic cadences in their Latin were both really, really, really rare and almost identical to one another. Right. So that was okay. So, yeah. So even even that kind of work involved counting. You had to count up all the different cadences, make some tables, and compare the two, and then do the same for a whole lot of other text written in rhythmic prose and so in other words it it, Those things all came out of uh, quantification
0: right and and uh, prose cadences um, and meter are are very Closely akin and that gets us into the area of even music and sound Um, Yeah, yeah, and just to add that dimension um, the the work, for example, that Bistra Pencheva has done on on Hagia Sophia and measuring sound, and that's digital humanities too.
1: Oh man, absolutely!
0: Yeah, I, I uh, she was in episode, I don't know, seven or eight or something uh, of of the podcast. I had her on about that. Uh, yeah, so I mean, there's incredible potential. Um,
1: yeah, and that's an example also of, of of crossing interdisciplinary lines between what art history and and is it electrical engineering or computer science. Uh, I, f- I forget exactly who she collaborated with, but uh, uh,
0: um, in- it was sound engineers and yeah, and C- yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so we were drowning in grails here, <laughs> grails
1: everywhere. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. So and then, so authors of attribution is the yeah. is is the okay. f- that I've gen- generally worked in. Good. There's and, so much. Uh, and, so many kind of unsolved questions there. Uh, oh, yeah,
0: yeah. In, in Byzantine studies, too. And, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: okay, good. Uh, we're almost out of time. Um, but I'd, I'd like to have you back on to talk about your other, I you mean, know, you're working on other historical projects um, in I'd love uh, to. Thanks. early yeah. Middle Ages. So we'll look forward to that. But uh, the closing question I ask my
1: guests is to recommend two good books yeah i love that question <laughs> um so why don't i recommend um <clears throat> one i guess b- uh, so there's one book um i read this last summer it's called quantitative methods in the humanities and i really uh highly recommend it it's written by two french historians um uh, claire la mercier and claire zalk and um, they're, they're, they both work in the modern period, so they're not necessarily, they're not Byzantinist or medievalist or classicist by mm-hmm. the stretch. But it's one of the best introductions to the concept of quantification and computation in the humanities that I've encountered. Um, the idea is that you can either, there's, there's those people who shun computation and quantification, just, ah, that's not something, that, I, I don't want that. Then there are those who, who fetishize it. And the idea of, in this book is that both of those approaches are extreme and non-critical, and that we need, what, what we need as humanists is numeracy, kind of uh, illiteracy with numbers, and, uh, and and to adopt a critical approach to the use of numbers and computing. And I think it, it does a really great job um, of making both the case and in – Providing some really incredible examples from actual scholarship and 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 so that that
0: would be one book that, that's great uh, and I think that historians might actually even need special training in in uh, not just computation but even counting <laughs> like like for for example just to give a very minor example here uh-huh. uh, how do you count years because oh, yeah I... because in Byzantium they you tend to count them inclusively yeah right uh, which uh, Americans uh. don't do mm-hmm. like in my mind everybody is a year older than they think they are <laughs> right <laughs> because you're not born zero you're not born zero years old. You're, you're you're born in your first year that it starts right there <laughs> yeah totally right and so you're you're in your first year you're not zero years old yeah right? i mean yeah and I so mean- and thereafter you remain anyway but so in Byzantine texts when they say oh he reigned for three years that might be two years in one month
1: yes right no no I mean uh, c- calendars and time oh, I mean, oh yes auxiliary discipline of its own in in in, in our fields yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely sorry that was just a pet uh, anyway and the second book Second book um, is, uh, I'll I'll suggest a a book that's really fun, um, but that has a lot of relevance, I think, to to, to this kind of work, in particular, to work with with text and corpora. It's written by a social psychologist named James Pennebaker, and it's called um, The Secret Life of Pronouns, What Our Words Say About Us. And um, so the question is the same that uh, these 19th century, uh, scholars of Plato and, and Paul and, and others are wondering, what do function words say? So function words are these words that we use without really thinking about them, the articles, the the pronouns, the the things that are necessary for speech, but that we, you know, don't yeah. actively plan to use. And um, what does a, a kind of uh, a corpus linguistical approach to our spoken and written English in this case reveal about our personalities, about Oof. our emotions, self identity, group dynamics that we're involved in, and whatnot, and it turns out it uh, reveals a lot. Um, it's uh, it's kind of kind of amazing. Um, it's a really f- fun and insightful read. Um, I'd be
0: terrified to read uh, that kind of analysis of my prose. <laughs> I don't know. That's almost like... At a, you...
1: at a certain point, it becomes it becomes almost, uh, you know, it becomes funny uh, uh, thinking about...
0: I guess. Yeah, it's like hearing your voice recorded on a podcast.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Right. Anyway. All right. Uh, well, thank you, Kuba. This has been very interesting. It's a topic that is both part of our age, but also very, very timely now, as so many of us are reduced to our libraries and digital humanities online, and that's it.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah. Thanks so much so, for, um, for for inviting me. And I, I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: No, uh, and I'll have you back. So hang in there Great. and stay safe.
1: All righty. Same to you.